we turn this evening in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Our text is taken out of chapter 7, but we read chapter 6 beginning at verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 16. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And we begin reading at verse 14. We hear God's word. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and to live with you. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. For when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God, that comforteth those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. When he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoiced the more. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceived that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season." Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, What carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Therefore we were comforted in your comfort. Yea, and exceeding the more joyed we for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. 
For if I have boasted anything to him of you, I am not ashamed. But as we spake all things to you in truth, even so our boasting which I made before Titus is found a truth. And his inward affection is more abundant toward you, whilst he remembereth the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling ye received him. I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, our text is taken from verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, there's a lot of sorrow in our day. There's sorrow in so many different areas and so many different circumstances. Sorrow that has to do with the passing of loved ones. Sorrow that has to do with the consciousness of things that we've done that we ought not have. A sorrow of despair. There's the sorrow of disappointment. So many different sorrows. Every home, every class of man, every nation knows what sorrow is. It's a common experience. But our text here is talking about a sorrow that is not common. It's a sorrow that's according to God. It's a sorrow that is unique and a wonder of God's grace. Ordinary sorrow, worldly sorrow is selfish. But this sorrow is generous. And this sorrow reveals itself in a marvelous way in the lives of God's children. We look at that sorrow with this question, is this my experience? Do I know this sorrow, this sorrow that is a sorrow by which I stand before God and I acknowledge my sin and I confess my sin before God? A sorrow that must be evident in our lives, especially as we come to the Lord's table, acknowledging that we are sinners who know the seriousness of that sin and know that sin as an offense against the living God. Titus here has returned from Corinth with a good report to Paul, according to verses 6 and 7. Paul's first letter, as you're aware, to Corinth was sharp. It was loving, but it was sharp. There were serious sins in Corinth, sins that were so serious that it seemed as though the church of Corinth was not going to be able to survive. And so the apostle Paul had hoped to get there. He wasn't able to come there in person. And so he had to write a letter. And you know how challenging it is to write a harsh and yet loving letter that can easily be misconstrued or misunderstood. And so the Apostle Paul wrote that letter not knowing how it was going to be received. Titus was instructed to deliver it, and Titus was to convey the love of Paul and the assurance that his desire was their repentance. Paul, understandably then, is but anxious about that. And that comes out here in this passage here, how there was some anxiety, even perhaps wondering, should I have wrote the letter? That he was repenting of it even at times, thinking maybe that was a wrong idea. But now, he hears a report back from Titus. The letter has been well received. Evidence of that is found in that they received the admonition. They were convicted of the sins that Paul identified in their midst. And diligence had been taken, not only personally to turn away from them, but the church also had taken up discipline and had faithfully carried out the work that was required of them. And now Paul is moved, moved to deep gratitude and thankfulness to God. 
moved by the wonder that God has seen fit to use the words that he wrote for good in the church here at Corinth. And that now becomes the context of this passage and the understanding of it. For, we read in verse 10, godly sorrow worketh repentance. That introduces an explanation here of the character of that sorrow and the reason for Paul's joy and rejoicing. Paul has done no injury to them. Paul desired that they see their sin, they confess it, and that they turn to God in repentance. But he knew also that they might put on fake tears, maybe put on a show for Titus, kind of pretend to be sorry. His prayer was that the sorrow would be genuine and real. And now Titus comes back with a report that it was indeed. And that's the rejoicing. And it gives us opportunity then to examine our own selves with regard to the nature of that sorrow that exists in our lives. Is it a sorrow that's unto repentance? Or is it a sorrow merely because of the consequences? Because I got caught? Because of what I have to suffer now as a result of my situation? So easy it is for us to display a sorrow that's not very genuine, a sorrow that's selfish. But by God's grace, a sorrow is worked in us that is unto repentance. And that's the sorrow that the passage now talks about. A godly sorrow. A sorrow that involves no injury, no loss, but only gain. Its end is joy. It's peace with God and true happiness. This godly sorrow is something that every child of God desires. Not only in them, but also to see in their children, to see in their loved ones. And that godly sorrow must be evident in your life and my life as we come to the Lord's table. And so we look at sorrow working repentance, noting the meaning, the activity of it, and the fruit. A contrast is set forth here in our text, the sorrow of the world and the sorrow that is unto God. And that contrast has to be understand understood in, its, in all of its sharpness here. The word world, a sorrow that's according to world, word world here is being used in terms of the same way in which it was used in 1 John 2 to refer to all that which is according to the flesh, that which is according to worldliness and wickedness. Love not the world. That's the admonition that God gives us. And that's the idea here with regard to the world. The world is antithetically opposed to God. The nature of the sorrow that's according to the world is a sorrow then that is distinct from the sorrow that's godly, a sorrow that's very different. Now, what is this sorrow? It's often a sorrow because of sin, and it's connected to sin. It's a sorrow even that's often caused by sin. I sinned, and now there's this trouble in my life that causes sorrow. But it's a sorrow that's worldly and a sorrow that works death. How does it do that? It's grief, it's remorse, it's fear. It leads even to despair. That's the point of the passage. The world expresses all kinds of regret, all kinds of remorse for things that are done wrong and for sins that are committed. But it's not a sorrow because I sinned against a holy and righteous God. It's not a sorrow in the context of my covenant communion with God and my knowing that I cannot live apart from God. And to live apart from God is death. Instead, it's a sorrow that is, again, selfish. It's a sorrow that flows out of love for self, 
as a result of this sin and the consequences of it, now I'm robbed of freedoms I used to have. I'm robbed now of things in my life that previously I enjoyed. And now I'm filled with self-pity. And I'm sorrowful because not I desire to turn my life around, but rather because I want to continue in those sins, but I don't want to have to experience these consequences. It's the sorrow, for instance, of a gambler. A gambler who is ruining his life. He's ruining the life of his family. He's wasting his money. And he's so filled with dismay, he's so filled with sorrow, that he tries to end it all finally by trying to take his life. That's not a godly sorrow. That's a sorrow of despair, a sorrow that's according to the world. Or a murderer who's convicted now. He's on death row. He faces execution. He's filled with fear. He's filled with anxiety because of the horrible end that he's going to face. But he's not sorrowful for what he did. He doesn't acknowledge that his sin was against the Most High God. He doesn't desire communion and fellowship with the living God. This is a grief that rises out of fear, a fear of disease, a fear of death, a fear of hell, perhaps. It's a sorrow where God's not in my thoughts. God is not in my concerns. And rather, it's a sorrow then that finds no pity, no mercy from the living God. It's a sorrow that is the remorse of hell. The world is concerned about their actions and their conduct, but not because they want to turn, just because they want to escape the consequences. They want to be able to continue in that walk without any consequences. Now, the Bible gives us all kinds of examples of this kind of worldly sorrow. We have Cain. Think of Cain. Think of Saul. Think of Ahithophel. But specifically, if we think of Judas as one, Matthew 27, verse 3, talks about Judas's remorse after betraying the Lord. And even the language that's used is striking. Then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said to him, What is that to us? See thou to it. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Now was that true, sincere sorrow? We read there that he repented. The word that's used is not the word for true repentance, true turning. It's a word that's used to express emotional regret, emotional remorse. Judas realized he had done something very, very wrong. He had betrayed an innocent man. And he realized now the consequences that were to come upon him. And he tries now to get out of it. But he doesn't repent in terms of turning his life around now, confessing his sin and committing now to pursuing what's right in his life. He speaks of having sin, but not confessing his sin before God. Think of Esau. Esau is another outstanding illustration in the Bible. Esau's tears, his sorrow, his regret, in Genesis 27, 38. And Esau said unto his father, Hast thou but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. You remember that history. Jacob and Esau were yet at home. Isaac was to bless Jacob. And Isaac instead told Esau 
to go get the venison and to come back. Rebecca and Jacob immediately spring into action in order to see to it that Esau does not get the blessing. And so Jacob blesses, or Isaac blesses Jacob, and then here comes Esau finally. And he's looking for a blessing, and it's too late. And so he cries out. Here's a grown man given to tears. Bless me, bless me. Just give me some blessing. And here's the significant commentary that we have regarding that history in Hebrews 12, verse 17. For you know that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Now here the word for repentance is the genuine word for repentance. He found no place for true repentance. That is, a true turning of the mind. A true turning away from sin and turning to God. His tears were just remorse for what he had lost. He no longer would get the physical blessings that he wanted. He wouldn't have the wealth and prosperity that he desired. And therefore now, his sorrow then, and this is a crucially important point, his sorrow was a sorrow with no intent to change his life. He was sorrowful, but he was going to continue doing exactly what he had always done. His sorrow was not a sorrow unto repentance, to change. What did he want instead? He wanted Esau to change. He says, Dad, or Esau wanted Jacob to change, sorry. He says, Dad, you change. You now give me a blessing. He's not willing to change. He wants Isaac too. And so that's why Hebrews 12 says he sought that repentance in Isaac instead. He wanted Isaac to change. And isn't that so characteristic at times of that worldly sorrow? And we see it. We see it in our children. We see it in ourselves. They won't change. They're filled with remorse because of their actions. But they're not going to change. They want us to change. Change the rules. Make it so that what previously was wrong now is right. That's the sorrow that's according to the world. A sorrow that's according to the devil. And so, beloved, again, we did ask ourselves, is that the kind of sorrow that characterizes my life? When I'm caught, when sin is confronted, when I experience the consequences of sin in my life, am I moved to just a selfish sorrow? I'm not going to change things. I just want to somehow make my life better, and I want to escape the consequences of it. I'm not sorry for my sin. I'm not sorry for the fact that my sin was an offense against the Almighty God. I'm just sorry that I got misunderstood. Sorry that I got caught. So quickly and easily, that can be what characterizes the shallowness of our sorrow. And evidence of that is then, I'm not going to fight against sin. I'm concerned about making myself look good for a while, maybe, but I'm not really interested in fighting against temptation. I'm not interested in fleeing sin and walking humbly with my God. My walk with God and my fellowship and communion with the living God don't mean very much in my life. The fact that I confess Jesus as Lord is not very sincere because I'm doing what I want. But then there's the sorrow that is a godly sorrow here. Sorrow according to God. God's children are brought out of the world into communion with the living God. 
And that's a wonder of God's grace and a wonder of God's mercy. They live in covenant fellowship and communion with God. And when they fall into sin, they recognize with shame, my sin is against my heavenly Father who loved me with such a great love, who done such wondrous things for me. And now I am so ungrateful. I am so unthankful. The child of God who's been elected and chosen by God from eternity in time knows the wonder of the cross as the victory over sin and death, knows the power of God's grace, freeing him from selfishness, from living for self so that he now lives for God and lives for the glory of God, knows the horror of his sin. He knows that God is a holy and a gracious God. He knows that God is so good and God shows that goodness so often and he's ashamed How is it that I'm so ungrateful? How is it that I commit those same sins? And as I stand before the living God, I do so then, not daring to raise my eyes, ashamed for the fact that that same sin that I committed yesterday, I did again today. My sin is committed against the Most High Majesty of God. And He's a God who's good, a God who loves me, a God who cares for me. And I realize that that sin deserves punishment. It deserves hell. And it's because of that sin that Jesus suffered so. God works, beloved, a genuine, sincere love for him, desire for fellowship with him, and an awareness that sin stands in the way of that. Sin disrupts that communion and that fellowship. The character, then, of this Godly sorrow is that it's a sincere grief that rises out of the realization of my rebellion and my sinfulness. It's a sorrow over sin as I recognize that sin is against the righteousness and holiness of God. And it's that which God hates. God abhors that sin. It's a sorrow for God's sake. I know God's commandments. I know God's will and God's way. And as I stand before the living God, I can't say I didn't know better. I knew better, and still I did it. And now I'm filled with shame. But it's more than that. It's a, it's a sorrow that feels keenly separation from God. That as a result of my sin, there's a barrier now between myself and God. And I want that barrier removed. I cannot live with that barrier intact. That's the concern that the child of God, by God's grace and the work of the Spirit, experiences. Where there's that sorrow after God, there's a work of God in our hearts. And God is working that grace. God is giving us to see our sin. He's giving us to confess it, to be ashamed of it. Where there's no shame, there's no guilt, there will never be turning. But where there's shame and there's guilt, there's a godly sorrow that rises out of a love for God. I love God. I delight in Him. And I love what God has done for me. And I want to seek the things that God seeks. I want to pursue the things that God pursues. And rooted in that love and springing out of it then, godly sorrow cries out after God for mercy and for forgiveness. Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. Lord, show me compassion and show me pity. Forgive me. The Holy Spirit pricks our consciences so that we feel that deep, profound sense of guilt and shame. And he uses means. He uses the scriptures. He uses 
various circumstances of our life in order to bring us to understand our utter unworthiness, the depths of our sin, removing all pride and giving us to acknowledge and confess before Him that we deserve everlasting judgment and damnation. And we rise up our eyes unto the heavens and we cry out for mercy. We desire satisfaction and we can't do it. We can't make it of ourselves. The only possibility is through Jesus, what Jesus did for me. And we cling then to the cross and the wonder of the cross. The fruit of this godly sorrow is laid out here in verse 11. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. What do we, how do we understand all of those different words? Carefulness, humility. There was humility. There was a righteous indignation against myself. Not moved with anger against others around me. Moved with anger against myself. Why did I do that? What was I thinking? There's a fear of God's wrath. Acknowledging God as a just and righteous God. There's a vehement desire to find favor with God. The child of God wants God's eyes to be looking upon him with favor. And there's that vehement desire to have God looking upon me, not in anger, not in wrath, but in love. There's a zeal, a zeal to do what's right, to maintain godliness and holiness. There's a revenge and a consciousness that sin must be made right with God in order to satisfy his justice. The child of God experiences those spiritual works. Now we realize we have but a small beginning of that new obedience. We realize that the sorrow that is of the world tragically is going to be more evident in our response. It's going to be evident within our hearts. We realize there's going to be times of darkness in our lives where we're not going to be so quick to pray after we've sinned. We're not going to be so concerned about repentance. We're going to, going to be way more concerned about the consequences, how we look, what other people think of us, what kind of circumstances are there going to be. And we're not going to be willing to submit ourselves to God and to His grace in that sorrow. But beloved, by God's grace, in principle, that sorrow, that godly sorrow, as a gift of God's grace, is present in the hearts of His children. And God will not allow His children to continue unrepentantly in sin. But God, in His time, will bring that one to sorrow. David continued unrepentantly in sin for some time, almost a year, until God brought Nathan the prophet to him. There are times in our lives where that occurs, and we call that backsliding. The child of God now is backsliding. That child of God is not walking in the consciousness of the wonder of God's grace. And that one needs to repent, needs to turn from their sin and look to God in His grace and in His mercy. And we're concerned about that in our own lives. Am I walking in a spirit of justifying my behavior? Am I trying to justify things that I ought not? as David, no doubt, was trying to reason in his own mind. Am I caught up in a situation, in a circumstance where I'm walking in selfishness and I'm more concerned about myself than I am 
my God, and those around me whom my sin has affected. The Bible teaches many illustrations of this godly sorrow. The prodigal son in the Bible, converts at the time of Pentecost, but also specifically, as I noted, David, after his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the Hittite. We read in 2 Samuel 12, 14, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born of thee shall surely die. David admits his sin, and his sin is against Jehovah. I have sinned against God. He acknowledges the seriousness of that sin with regard to those whom he loved. And Nathan assures him, David, David knows what he deserves. David is the first to say, I deserve to die. And that's the child of God, standing in the reality of his sin. I deserve to be cast off. I deserve to die. But what is the message? What's the wonder of God's grace? You will not die, but live. I gave my son to die in your place. Jesus Christ stood where you where you deserve to stand. And he took upon himself that punishment that you deserve. And now already in the Old Testament here, God gives David that assurance. David, thou shalt not die. Howbeit because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child that is born of thee shall surely die. The consequences of that sin are real. He's going to experience them. And those consequences are going to be live with him. And rather than being filled with anger for those consequences, David realizes these consequences are nothing compared to what I deserve. There's lessons there, is there not? We sin. We acknowledge our sin before God. There's going to be consequences. But those consequences aren't nearly what we deserve. We deserve far greater. But God is the one who is faithful in giving us the gospel and a Savior. Think of Peter too. Peter's denial of Jesus. Peter three times denies his Lord after cocky and proudly saying to Jesus that he would never do that. And then Matthew 26, 75, And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. There Peter's tears were very different than the tears of Esau. Peter's tears were tears that acknowledged a change of heart and acknowledged that he knew what he deserved. He deserved to die. But then we have the subsequent words of Christ to Peter. Peter, feed my sheep. And we have God's restoration of Peter and the marvelous wonder by which Peter is able to be used by God in a marvelous way yet for the continued building up of God's church. And in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, we can see the influence and the effect of this sin and its repentance in Peter's life. God working in him that true sorrow, that sorrow that was godly. That godly sorrow is evident in that it involves repentance. There's no repentance in the sorrow of the world. The sorrow for the consequences of sin, again, doesn't involve change. There may be some change for a little while, but then that one reverts right back again to the sins that previously they committed. As soon as the memory of the consequences is gone, the sin is 
indulged in again. The sorrow of the world is superficial. It's outward regret. It's self-pity. And again, beloved, we need to examine ourselves. Does this characterize me? Does it characterize you? We regret the consequences. We wallow in self-pity because we got caught. Maybe we know others that escaped. They didn't get caught. And so there's that sense that, why did I get caught while they were able to continue in their sin without getting caught? And we go through a period of lukewarmness, of darkness, where true sorrow doesn't show itself in our consciousness. But true repentance is the heart, is the work of God's grace in the heart of the elect sinner. Repentance is not the work of man. Repentance is the work of God. And repentance truly involves a change of mind, a turning of one's mind. The Spirit works sorrow, a sorrow that is focused on God and a sorrow that is affected by the fact that my walk with God and my covenant consciousness of that communion has been affected by my sin. Because of my sin, my prayers are not certain. Because of my sin, I struggle now to know, is God looking upon me in mercy? Does God love me? We realize the enormous weight of our sin, and there's a burden, there's a helplessness as we find ourselves in need of Christ and his perfect sacrifice. We realize there's nothing I can do to escape the judgment that I deserve. We realize, too, that I can't remain in this dark state. And so we cry out, have mercy. We cry out to God for grace. And we desire that change of life. We desire that turning. We realize how weak we are, that if we put ourselves in the same situation, we're likely going to fall back into that sin. And so we cry out, Lord, strengthen me in the face of temptation. Give me the courage to know that I can do all things through Christ, who is my strength. Even though we're elect children of God from all eternity and those for whom Christ died on Calvary, even though we've experienced the forgiveness of our sins objectively, there can be a time while that experience of forgiveness is not ours. We're walking in sin. We're living in that sin. We're not turning from it. And while we're in that sin, we're not going to experience peace. There's not going to be the assurance of our salvation. Repentance lies at the heart of the Christian's experience. Repentance works the change of mind. It works the change of heart. It gives the renewed assurance. It works that confidence regarding my salvation in Jesus Christ. And that repentance, again, is literally with the mind. There's a conscious turning away from that sin with the mind, with the body, with the actions, and turning now to God and pursuing what's right, living a new and holy life through Jesus Christ. Martin Luther talked about the fact, especially in the context of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church emphasized that this was something you should do maybe once a month, perhaps once a year, go to the confessional and repent of the sins that you've been guilty of. Martin Luther correctly identified this as a daily, continual, lifelong experience. This is something I'm doing every morning, every noon, every night. This is not something that I do once in a while. The whole of my life is characterized by acknowledging my sin, turning from it, looking to God for mercy, and crying out for the wonder of His grace by which I might know that peace and that joy and press on in obedience to Him. This repentance works visible fruit. It's difficult 
to judge repentance because repentance is a matter of the heart. But there is that fruit, that which is evidence of true sorrow. There's the fleeing from sin. There's the fleeing to the cross. There's the confessing that I'm unworthy, that I'm a sinner, that I don't deserve to be embraced by God in love. There's the acknowledgement that I cannot make atonement for my sin. And especially, beloved, there's the faith that's expressed in the clinging to the cross, knowing that the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ is that which is necessary for my salvation. I cannot be saved apart from what he did for me. And the necessity then of looking to him alone as the one through whom my salvation is found. Beloved, is that your experience? Is that mine? That I know my sin. I know my unworthiness. I look to Christ. And I confess that it's through him alone that I can go forward. How do I know that my sorrow is not merely that selfish sorrow of the world? By its fruit. By the evidence that God works within me, giving me to know that peace, that joy, and giving me to confess Christ as my Lord and Savior. The fruit of the worldly sorrow is death. The sorrow of the world worketh death. Now that's inevitable. The fruit is like the tree. And the tree is like the root. And if the root is bad, the tree is bad, then the fruit is going to be bad. The wicked are not able to bring forth fruit that's pleasing in God's eyes. And the sorrow of the flesh then and the sorrow of the world is enmity against God. It loves sin and the wrath of God is upon it. Now we know what death is. Death is the opposite of life. By God's grace, we have life. We have been brought into communion and fellowship with the living God. Death is the opposite. Death is to live in the conscious horror of sin. And those who are living according to the flesh, giving themselves over to the enmity of the world, they're those who are reflecting that horror. We read of it in the last part of chapter 6. An unequal yoking together with unbelievers, a loyalty with the devil, a pursuing of the things that are unclean, as one pursues that way, there's death. And God already in this life gives them over then to their sin. And the result of that sin is hardening of their heart in order to become more and more rebellious, more and more given over to that sin, allowing them to heap wrath upon themselves as a result of their sin. God creates a fierce struggle within the consciousness and the heart of the unbeliever. He loves his sin, but he regrets the fact that my sin is going to result in hell. And every wicked person knows this. They don't get to hell and are shocked, but they realize this is the result. But the result of this struggle is what? Utter hopelessness. Like that of Judas going out and hanging himself. As one realizes that sin and his love for that sin and has no power to turn from it and therefore pursues it headlong to destruction. Why does the sorrow of the world work death? Because it clings to sin. And the wages of sin are what? Death. 
death is the end result of the world, and God will judge the world, the wicked, with everlasting judgment in hell. God's justice will be satisfied. Horrible, that is. Worldly sorrow already now in this life is rapidly working out that end and ultimately results then in hell. Romans 2, Or despiseth thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasureth up unto thyself wrath, against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. The sorrow of the world is a sorrow that just becomes more and more bitter until finally it ends in the pitiful destruction of hell. In contrast to that, beloved, we have the godly sorrow that is with a view to salvation. What a wonder of God's grace. And we look at Specifically, that aspect of salvation that's on the foreground here, the forgiveness of our sins. He that is sorrow, sorry over his sin as a result of God's work, using God's criteria, looking in the mirror of God's law, judging himself with the judgment that God would judge him, loves God, loves righteousness, loves holiness, loves everything that's of God. He hates and abhors sin. He hates that sinful nature and he does battle against it. And in all that he loves, and in all that love of God then, there's sorrow, and there's a crying out for mercy, and there's an experience then of God's forgiving grace. God forgives. God declares us righteous. He justifies us. And then in our conscience gives us the faith by which we lay hold on that justification. And we know that my sins are forgiven. He will no longer remember my sin. He's cast it away. He won't remember my corrupt nature against which I have to struggle all my life long. But God will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. That's Lord's Day 21. Setting forth the wonder of that justification. That is the fruit of repentance. God working that wonder in our hearts and giving us then to know that joy and that peace. The parable of the publican and the Pharisee is an outstanding example of this and of God's mercy. Remember the publican humbles himself unto death, doesn't even dare raise his eyes. The Pharisee is all proud, cocky with regard to the fact that he's glad he's not like that man. The publican goes home justified. Godly sorrow is evidence of faith. And God works then that blessed assurance and that peace in the hearts of his children. Beloved, by God's grace, our sorrow is with a view to salvation. Our sorrow is the sorrow of repentance that works forgiveness. It's that which God in his fatherly kindness works in our lives toward a definite end. God desires that we be reconciled with himself. He does not want his children to be separated from him. Back Sliding elect children must be restored again. And so God causes deep sorrow, sometimes crushing sorrow, sometimes a sorrow that's painful and humiliating. But the fruit of it is a fruit that the apostle here says will never be regretted. You'll never be remorseful. This is a sorrow that you'll never be sorry for. You'll never be remorseful of. A worldly sorrow causes remorse but not this 
We'll never regret the repentance that God has worked by his grace. We'll never regret the fact that God led me through a way of sorrow. There were consequences of my sin that were painful, but that he used them to teach me not to play with fire. Because I know that if I play with temptation, I will get burned. And so rather than despising the consequences, God working in that grace by which we realize those consequences are for my good. My sins have been wiped away. There's therefore now no condemnation in Jesus Christ. And God now gives me the grace of knowing and believing that fellowship with him in that glorious covenant is that which is sure in Jesus Christ. We walk in repentance. We experience the wonder of that godly sorrow. And it's a sorrow that then is changed to everlasting joy. Beloved, as we examine our hearts in this week, may we put away that worldly sorrow and may we cry out to God for mercy as we live in the conscious wonder of his work of repentance and joy in our lives. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us, strengthen us, and grant that we might go forward as those who know thee, who love thee, who delight in the things of thy kingdom and who desire to walk with thee in holiness and in righteousness fighting against and doing battle against the world, our flesh, and giving us to know that we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice. As we anticipate coming to the table next Sunday, may we know deeply our need for his perfect sacrifice and live in the wonder of it. Amen.